Hello and welcome to another episode of The Advantage. I am your host, Michael Fiddle. Today is Tuesday, October 24th. And on today's show, we are opening up another NBA gambling mailbag and hitting about 10 listener-submitted questions, going deep into NBA strategy, and hosting a very, very important podcast. We got a lot to cover today. Let's get straight into it. I'm the type to get shit done. You're the type to observe. March Madness on my speakers, but today's November 23rd. Cause something loud in the blunt, yeah. I don't say what I want, yeah. Probably somewhere sunny and tan. Foreign women in the sun, yeah. That's all that I need. That's all that I need. That's all that I need. Come my brothers with me. Come my brothers with me and my mama's healthy. That's all that I need. All right, welcome into the show. Before we get started, this episode is brought to you guys by Fantasy Basketball International. Make sure you go check out their website, their Discord channel, their rankings, their podcast feed, their YouTube channel. So many great things coming out of the FBI world, Fantasy Basketball International, that is. So make sure you go check them out if you are a fantasy basketball player. Of course, if you are into NBA gambling, follow along my Twitter, at FiddlesPicks. And check out my free gambling newsletter, the fiddlepicks.substack.com. I send out weekly picks, market summaries, and a lot of cool stuff, even some free giveaways through my Substack. Okay, we are going to jump right into this because it's a very, very important episode that we have today. I am joined by our one of our most frequent guests on the pod, probably the most frequent, Gibby Graves. He is going to jump in the host chair in about one minute. Because I sent him all of the listener questions that I've been submitted, and I want him on the show with me to not only pitch me the questions so I'm not rhetorically talking to myself, but I want him to be able to add in more questions as I'm talking, if anything is confusing, chime in with his own thoughts because he's an experienced gambler himself. So we are going to go through these about 10 listener questions. But before we get started, Gibby, your first time with me with that new intro video. Quick thoughts on that. Song is the song is a is a bop. Uh, shout out to FBI. Um, really like the like the intro. It gets us you know in the mood to to start talking gambling. I love it. Let's do it. All right, let's jump right into it. I don't want to waste too much time because we got a bunch of great questions to hit. Hit me with any of them, and let's get this thing rolling. Opening day NBA. Uh, so I think it's it's fair to start here. Uh, question is, is it? easier to win your game to win bets early in the season compared to mid or later in the season? So this is a great question to start with, and I want to give a pretty nuanced answer in terms of when it is easiest to win bets. For me as a line movement capper, the most important thing is beating the news break. If it's just a straight up game, then I want the stars playing. I want talent on the court because that is going to factor into people with models and projections who are trying to attack these lines and claim that they are mispriced. They are doing it from assuming full health or assuming a news break is coming if we're going with the news break direction. So for me, the best time and the easiest time to win in NBA gambling is the NBA playoffs. Now, if you are a props better, If you are betting based on props, based on trends, based on rotations, then it is easiest to win bets mid-season. You have kind of a bell curve because you are learning about rotations early in the season, so you're not really too sure who's playing, what the minute allotment, what those rotations are. If you're betting over-unders for player points and things like that, by mid-season, 
teams are in what we call mid-season form, and they're pumping out a regular rotation. And then towards the late season in the NBA, fantasy basketball people will know, we call this silly season when rotations get wonky, players start to rest a bit, uh, young guys start to be prioritized in their development on some teams, other guys are given a few rest days here and there. So rotations become a bit wonky towards the end of the season. So really, for any reason, I'd say late NBA season becomes more difficult. Mid-season becomes the most fruitful for in-season. Beginning could present a lot of opportunity to attack if you think the market doesn't properly reflect one team. And it's like it hasn't caught up. For me, it might be the Memphis Grizzlies. We'll talk about them when we get to the preseason priors conversation, how we're judging the impact of the Stephen Adams injury, but things like that. I like early season for specific teams to target and maybe going bigger bets in those situations. If you feel the market isn't correct, mid season is just general. I can trust the, the line movement indicators. As long as the game is going to be, you know, a straightforward NBA TNT Thursday night game. Both of these teams are going to be trying. There's no crazy back-to-back situation and things like that. And then NBA playoffs are a place where we jack up our exposure because there is inherently less parity. These teams try really hard. Better teams and more talented teams win in the NBA, and you want to play into that. I love backing first-round favorites in the NBA. That's what I find is the easiest thing to bet. I bet a shit ton of them, and I do it at high exposure. So it's a nuanced answer to say it depends on the way that you're capping and the type of bet that you're taking will impact what is the most profitable bet window. But I think it's very important to consider because we are going to scale down our exposure late in the season and then jack it back up once the playoffs start. For someone like me who bets a lot of player props, is this a good time? Because there's no data based off the season and some like sophomore year players or third year players may make a big jump. And it's hard for the books to actually price that into what their, you know, what their points are for a game. So the first, like, say the first three games of the season, uh, no one really knows what the rotation. They have an idea. Is this a good time to try and hit hard on a player that you think is going to make a jump? And the the books may not have, you know, that priced into their player props. So like trying to get someone who you think is going to score 20 on the first game or a second game. And it's like, no, much higher odds than, than you think it should be? The answer is yes. As long as it's in conjunction with the other steps you take to handicap a randomly given spot. If it's just a, I think this line is mispriced and I want to hit it harder, that's not a good enough reason. If the line is, I think this is mispriced and we've seen starts of movement to ticket towards the over and that's the direction I want if I could still find that opening line at a different book so I'm getting that first crack at the number that everyone else is getting and I'm getting the best number if I'm still paying minus 110 before the odds shifted to minus 135 on some props it depends on the price and the number in which you pay but if you are if you're feelings represent the market trend and you feel strongly about it early in the season, especially in the player prop world, then yes, I definitely think try and attack certain spots harder, try and play into them over and over again for a few games in a stretch. Maybe look at the schedule purposes, you know, take the night off when they're on the third leg of a three, three games and four nights, five games and seven nights, 
you know, first game home after a long road trip, like take all of our normal scheduling factors into equation. But yes, if you think that you have something that's mispriced, like the Atlanta Falcons have been so far this NFL season, wait for the market to catch up and keep attacking it. Got it. So staying, staying along the lines of, of timing of the season, how many games into the season do you start to adjust your preseason assessment of teams? So that could be like their rotations, play style, expectation, et cetera. How, no, how many games in are you starting to look at, uh, at that? So I'm going to kind of answer this question with another question. Gib, how often do me and you text about basketball in the season? Every day. How often do me and you text about basketball when it's not the season? Every other day, most days, whenever we don't miss, we wouldn't miss a week talking, like talking about something that's happening in the association. Right. Yeah. So differently than football for this answer for me, I fucking love the game of basketball. I understand the game of basketball so much more. I see things on such a higher level when I just watch the game and understand the geometry of the way things are moving. I can identify some basic things that I can't in football. I don't know what formation a defense is setting up in in football. I understand if a team is playing switching one through three and then playing drop coverage. Like, that is easy to see. I understand if a team is running uh, uh, the hammer play named after Darvin Ham. I understand when the Warriors drop an elevator screen. So when I'm watching basketball, I feel like this is the point where my experience and my sports knowledge actually comes in. I can adjust preseason priors very quickly if they're very different from what I'm seeing. And then you get like added caveats of like what happens when a news breaks. And this is the one that's completely thrown me off is Memphis Grizzlies were probably my favorite team coming into this year. I felt like they were completely undervalued, whether that was in the futures market, whether that was still in the game by game market. I loved the way that they were set up because they're really talented, really deep and had the contract situation to add another huge piece. Now, the sneaky stats of this team show Steven Adams to be so important to their rebounding, to their offensive possession number, to their uh, ability to move Jaron outside so that he can help play more help defense and be the defensive MVP that he was. So without Steven Adams and something like that news break, that might take a sharp turn. I'm like kind of unaware. I don't know if I'm going to jump back in with the Memphis Grizzlies. I don't know if I'm totally out on them. So that's one that I definitely want to watch Grizzlies games early in the season so that I can use my eyes to then inform my decision making. And then, of course, I'm super, super aware of when the sharp market is turning to. So early this season, the Celtics are going to get pounded in the in the sharp market. We are going to back the Celtics game one against the Knicks. We are going to back the Celtics game two against the Heat when they return home Friday on the 27th. So for these reasons, I want to know when that goes starts going the other way. When does the number finally become too much? That's when your preseason priors are adjusted is when the market reflects differently on these teams. And it's not a one game sample size. It becomes multiple. See how the lines are moving for or against these teams. Understand if there's a rest spot, a situational spot that's popping up. Very interested to see how the rest rules will affect this. Injuries will affect this. Preseason priors in the NBA can be adjusted much quicker than the NFL 
simply because of my inherent basketball knowledge, my understanding of the game, understanding there's less parity in these games. It's not a game of inches where one call is like the biggest make or break. Basketball has bigger margins of victory, more variance in it. And like uh, you kind of can see what's happening in a clear sense. It's five on five. It's not 12 on 12. There's less things happening. So for me, I think you could adjust them pretty quickly. Gib, what about you? If you like love a team or if you like our, our, our shaky ground, how much does those early few games really impact you? Or, or um, how much is how much is like the Spurs absolutely crushing it in preseason right now, and the Mavericks looking like dog shit informing your decision to to attack a Maverick Spurs game one? I'm like, let me still take the Mavericks. I don't really care about that stuff. I know that yeah. they're starting Sohan at the point guard game one against Luca and Kyrie. Give me the talent. Give me the proven NBA situation, and I'm gonna not totally adjust my my priors until I see it regular season. Yeah, I would say preseason basketball is like preseason football it is some of the most useless information on the planet, and it doesn't actually say anything uh, and does not affect my betting at all. I think the first couple of games of the season, what I'm really looking for, because I, as you know, I love to bet player props. What I'm looking for is to see style of play for teams, and if teams are going to be playing with the style that I think is going to generate a lot of uh, statistics and, and a lot of points, assists, rebounds, that kind of thing. So Last year, early on, I was watching a lot of Kings games, and I saw that their style of play was just super, super up and down. There, everyone was putting up a lot of stats, so I started betting a lot on the Kings player props, and that was because early on in the season, I looked at their style of play, looking at what is their points per game early on, and you know, maybe not points per game, but someone could have Things an off like shooting pace. night. Yeah, pace, like how many shot attempts, how many three point attempts, those kind of things, and watching the game just to kind of get a feel. Uh, those are the kind of things I'm looking for early in the season because I think those kind of stay with the team for the for like you know at least midway through the through the season. So um, I think I think that's a great point to bring up. It's kind of reminds me of this year's Phoenix Suns uh, when they lost Chris Ball and they played games without Chris Ball. Their pace jacked up. So now that they come into a fresh season without him at all, should we just be attacking overs, overs, overs with this team until the market catches up because they're going to play so much faster, right? And they lost a veteran crafty defender. So I think pointing out the Kings is an absolutely perfect example. They're a team which last year, first year new coach, came in with a completely different play style, jacked up the pace, and the first few games were like, whoa, we have to take advantage of this team. Suns are trying to do a similar thing they're going to play with their bigs very differently under Frank Vogel. They're going to, you know, play with Beal and Booker running point guard and just trying to gun, not always setting an offense like they had under Chris Paul. We've already seen the total in their opening game go from like 231 to 232 all the way up to 235. So massive movement towards the over in that game. And I think that's a great example to say, look at play style. Look at things like pace. Look at things like rotation. Look at things like player props and use those to inform your early decisions more so than the spreads and totals market. Who do you think my the other team that I, I watched early in the season and was my second most, the team that I bet on the second most after the Kings last year? Not a team that I typically like or watch, that, or I, I, I watch them, but they're not like a favorite team of mine. It's kind of random. I have no I um Indiana Pacers. Exactly. It was the Pacers. 
Uh, you want Albert. to know? Wait, wait, wait. Let me know why I said that. Let me, let me, let me explain why I said that. It factors just back into the pace thing that I was talking about. They had the twenty-first most efficient offense, but they scored the third most points in the NBA last year. Now I heard this stat. I don't forget where, but I it, it stuck with me. Right for me to just pull that out like a rabbit out of a hat. That stat stuck with me. Twenty-first in offensive efficiency, third in points scored because they played with one of the fastest paces in the league every single night. So forgive me to say he adjusted his expectations based on the Indiana Pacers lines up with exactly what we were talking about. Okay. What, what, what were you saying about Halliburton? No, Halliburton. I, I just kept betting on Halliburton because he kept like having like 14 assist games, 13 assist games. Yeah, and then buddy exactly. Keel would have like six threes and it, it would just, it just lined up perfectly before I move to the next uh, mailbag question. I have a question for you based on something you said, you said, one of the teams that you're going to be watching very closely, Memphis Grizzlies. Obviously, big storyline with the Grizzlies. John Morant suspended 25 games. At the 25-game mark, how are you thinking about how Jaws' return is going to impact uh, the betting for you, for you for the Grizzlies, whether that's player props, whether that's overs, whether that's wins? How, how is that suspension and him returning going to impact how you bet the Memphis Grizzlies and or now without him. I think what we've seen in the last few years when Ja has missed time, they almost play like two completely different teams when he's there versus when he's not there. When he's on the court, they are running and playing so fast. When they are when he's not around, they're a really good defensive team. With that being said, even though I feel like there's two stark playing styles, every time he's come back, it's been like I'm right back. It's like being first game back, no no hangover, no bullshit. So for me, it'll be I'm right back to it. I think John Morant will be just fine as soon as he reemerges. I would let's see what news comes in of how many minutes is he going to play? Is he just going to is he going to come off the bench for the f- first few games like Steph and Draymond do when they come back from injury? Is any uh, is the rest of the team healthy? Have they acquired a center? I think with this Steven Adams out for the season news. I think they're sneakily in like the the Time Lord Rob Williams. Let's try and pluck him from Portland uh, situation. I think they're sneakily going to look around and say like, is can Jared Allen finally be plucked from Cleveland in any capacity? So I think there's going to be some sneaky ways that the Grizzlies try and add to their roster. This was the biggest thing that I talked about this uh, offseason with the Grizzlies is their books and their contracts were so situated where they have first-round picks, young tradable assets, and cap room in the future to really add on big pieces. So, like, do they bring in Carly Anthony Towns in any capacity? Absolutely not. They would never do that. But, you know, I think there's there's going to be ways that they change their team. When John Morant comes back, we'll have to evaluate it all. But I'm right into it. And I think maybe the, the, the number one way to attack it is Grizzlies' first quarter at home with John Morant is, like, what the Twitter fodders would call a lock of the day or free money. It's not actually, but it hits at a rate that's so uh, friendly to us that we just tr- kind of transbed it over and over again. When John ja Morant comes back and he's playing at home, bet the Grizzlies money line first quarter. You'll bring home the bacon. Oh, I like that. 
Um, and it'll be interesting to see how they handle the backup point guard with, with no Tyus. Marcus Smart taking over how that, how that I think D. Rose is going to play a very up-tempo John Morant kind of role, playing 20 minutes a night, trying to score 16 points in those 20 minutes. And then he's going to kind of be out of the rotation once Jock comes back. I like it. All right. Well, we'll move to the to the next mailbag question that that we have here. One that I I really like. Want to I want to get your thoughts on. Uh, how much do game lines? We're talking spreads and totals. How much do they move before NBA games, and what actually affects them the most? And then uh, uh, behind that question is how much earlier do you typically bet ahead of the schedule? So I'm willing to bet as soon as lines are posted. That's kind of one of the most important things is that if you can get in early, if you understand key numbers, which I think we'll get to in this show, um, and you can see the value and foresee movement in your direction in the bet that you want, then bet it as early as you can. The only reason not to be betting early is probably someone not listening to this podcast 21 minutes in because they probably really know what they're doing because they're betting limits right at open or they want to forego betting at open because they want to bet higher limits of the, you know, 5000 books, $5,000 the books will take at the first three hours the line is posted, right? Then the books will start to take in more information and then they'll juice that to, 10,000, 15,000, 20,000, 25, 50,000 right before tip off. As the game gets closer, the limits that a book has, because they inherently have more information on the game they and they have more of a handle to figure out, they accept bigger limits. That's why we follow the trends throughout while until the line, until the game actually tips off. That's why we take late line movement very important. It's super important because that might be massive money that's come in. That might be someone who was waiting on the number or waiting on the limit to get them to a point they want because they wanted that number so badly that they didn't want to tip off the book that they even wanted that number and they're going to hammer it. So we're going to be very aware of movement throughout the moment the line is posted until the game is tipped off. And then once the game is tipped off and it's in the live market, we'll also get to that in this conversation. We're going to completely forget everything that we were thinking about just before that. We're not going to use our pregame priors to affect a live bet decision. We will get into that. How much movement does a line happen is one of my favorite questions going into this year too, Gib. We have seen literally six to eight points of movement in spreads the last few years with the with what I call like the COVID and rest era. Um, we were seeing stars sit all the time, back-to-backs, road trips, fourth game in five nights kind of situation. And we would get a six to eight point swing in the t- in in both the spread, maybe a ten point move in the total with some guys being in or out, like massive, massive movement the last few years. That's why I said beating the news drop has been the most important factor of the NBA the last few years. I actually haven't loved that that aspect of it, and I'm really interested to see how much lines are moving this year. I, I, it's just something I'm definitely tracking in my own personal views early this season. It will inform the decision on my bet timing later on is like, when are these lines moving? Are people attacking them and they're moving really early? Are they moving a lot? Do I need to get in right away? Can I still follow steam after it's moved two points? Or is that as far as it's going to go? Before I felt like I could follow steam after it's moved a point and a half because I knew it might go six points. Now, if these lines are only going two points, then I'm out after one point of movement. So it's all relative to a lot of this data. I'm very much aware 
of what's going to happen early in the season, or I'm very much wondering and going to be aware once it happens about tracking it. And it will be for every single game that I'll be aware of this. It will not be just the games that I bet. I'm going to be tracking this for every team, for every game, and it will help me bet as, as the season progresses, which leads me back to that original point. That's why betting in December and January might be the most profitable months besides the NBA playoffs for NBA betting because we're going to have this information to work with. Say, say you put a bet in immediately, you know, as the line comes out and then the line moves drastically, right? So you put one unit down once you once the line comes out and it moves drastically. Is there anything that you do from that point, you know, say it moves eight, you know, eight points, nine points because the star is out, but you you already have the line set for, for one unit. How are, would you do anything at that point now to take advantage of that line movement? Because you already have you already have your initial bet. You know, say you have an over, you know, and went under by nine points. Is there? No, are you going to do anything to take advantage of that? Make it an automatic win? Like, what? How are you thinking about that once once you put that that initial bet in? So there's two ways that this can go. Either I've gained value on the bet because I I got the news break correct or I got the whatever's dropping correctly, and I beat the line by eight points. There's a, there's the other way of. I got it wrong. I thought Giannis and Dame were both playing. I backed the box. Now it's gone swiftly the other direction, and I kind of see myself in a shitty spot with negative CLV. We call this CLV, closing line value. What is the difference in the amount of points between your bet ticket and the live line? That is what CLV is. Um, it is the most best thing in sports gambling because – the live line generally has a 50-50 chance of winning in either side. So if you obtain CLV, if you have more winning numbers on your side, so say you bet minus five in the NBA and the move, it moved out to minus eight, the minus eight now has a 50-50 and you've acquired winning numbers of seven, six, and a push on the five. So if we know the outcome probabilities relative to that given spot, then you've added on those percent chances to win that bet, which will push you above the 52.38 threshold you need to be profitable, and that will be a plus EV bet. So generally, obtaining closing line value is the best thing. Now, what do you do when you've got a lot of it, or what do you do when you're in a shitty situation and you are on the wrong side of it? Let's address the wrong side of it first, because it's very easy. You do nothing. You just keep your bet where it is. And you just hope for NBA variants. Weird shit happens in the NBA. These outcomes are a lot less frequent in the NBA as they are in the NFL. The NFL, we get games that happen with very consistent outcomes between, you know, one and like 14. There's not many games that finish in the NFL different than that. If anything, 21, 28. In the NBA, we will see games with 50 points difference. We will see game, NBA games with 40, 30s. Like, there's so much more variance in this. In the totals market, you'll see anything from 250 to 190 in a given in a given thing. For NFL, you'll see between 20 and 50. So there's a lot. There's like double the variance in the NBA as there is for NFL. So if you're on the negative side of CLV, just do nothing and hope variance plays out in your favor and you get lucky. But you don't want to open up a neg a reverse middle, a Polish middle, they call it. You can look that up, where you have losing numbers on both sides of your bet. Now, the question is, Gibby, do you want to open up a positive middle and acquire some buyback? Um, and, like, if you gain six points in the spread, say you took a pick'em and then 
uh, on on the Miami Heat at home playing against the Bucs, and they were a pick em. And then Damon and Giannis are both ruled out, and now it's Miami Heat minus eight. And you could get Bucks plus eight when you have Heat pick em. Do you want to do that? The question is, the or the answer to the question is, go right back and restart the capping process now knowing that they're out. How much did the line move? Now that the line is moving, is it keeping going in that direction or is there starting to be movement back? Are the sharps saying, oh, that's too much? You want to follow the trends as it continues to happen and unfold in real time. There are certain spots that are more valuable if you're going through the right key numbers. Five, six, seven, eight in the NBA are the most important key numbers. So if you're opening up middles in that spot, I really like it. If you're doing it between one and four, I don't like it as much because they're less valuable. So I'd rather let a positive CLV ticket ride and just try and win the value and win 100% of my bet than try and open up some middle. If I've crossed through a lot of key numbers, if I'm seeing some other buyback in the market, if I'm seeing the eights that when it moved eight points, it starts to come back to 7.57. And I was like, okay, let me get, get it the other direction now because there's movement there. Then I'll do it. It's very much situational, but you do want to be aware of how much exposure you bet the more exposure that you bet opens up the ability to do more buyback. If you put two units on a line, then you could buy back one unit and still have one unit tilted towards that side and one unit with a positive middle. If you are taking middles, just to explain the math of this, and you have minus one tens on both sides and you're risking, let's just use one unit to make it easy, 1.1 unit to win one on a minus 110, a pretty standard bet, then With a positive middle, you could win one bet, lose one bet. You cannot lose both, and you could possibly win both. So your max loss is one-tenth of a unit because you would lose 1.1 and win one. So you would lose 0.1 units. And your max win is winning both one units and winning two units total. So your potential loss, tenth of a unit. Your potential wins, two units. That's a 20x payout which correlates to a 5% implied probability. So if you feel like opening up a middle and the numbers in that spot correlate to more than a 5% chance of hitting that, then technically it is positive expected value. The question you are asking yourself at that point is, does acquiring this positive expected value, is it worth it to forego some of the value that I already have by establishing a huge plus CLV ticket? Uh, it's probably a confusing answer that you need to use all of the factors that we're talking about in real time, but you should be aware of the possibility of doing it. We'll go back to to the mailbag now. Uh, what indicators do you watch out for to say that a line is sharp? Um, is it sharp on its own or in relation to the rest of the books? Um, a sharp number. What, okay, so what indicators do I use to, to, to know that a line is sharp? I'll use, I'll, I'll say three. The most important three for me are line movement, betting splits, and just re- industry relations that I've made thus far. So if a line is moving in one direction, then you understand the sharp side. If the betting splits show large amounts of money coming in in one direction, but pretty even public, like even handles or difference or a large amount of money higher than the amount of volume, you generally know that's a sharp side. Generally, those betting splits and those line movements will work hand in hand. 
So if you're starting to notice the betting splits come in, that's what we're monitoring as the line starts to move or even before the line moves in anticipation of the line movement, then you're identifying the sharp side and attacking one of the first opening line numbers. And that's where you really can get yourself finding some great CLV. Last one is some industry relations. Now being at this for quite a few years, I've made some good friends who are also some pretty experienced gamblers. And we will share information with each other, like where we're getting action down, which spots we think are really valuable. So if I know of another handicap or another sharp syndicate group that I really trust going to be attacking said line, then I know I want to do it at the same time too. Because even if I agree or disagree with their position, their position is probably going to move the market. And then that will allow an opportunity for me to approach a buyback. I could just do that for my entire bet if I have the information. Now, what was this? What was the second part of that question? What what makes uh, a side shot? Is, like is, is it sharp on its own or uh, sharp in relation to it to the books? So it's not on a. It's not. There are sharp. There are some books that are sharp books. Circa is generally a sharp book. Uh, it's because they have massively high limits and they take mainly professional gamblers betting with them. Like me and you, Gib, we're not betting with Circa sports books. Like. They're playing at the highest of highest levels. Uh, we're on FanDuel and DraftKings and Caesars and those those more public books. So sharp, you could call a book sharp, but I wouldn't call a single bet sharp relative because it's at that book. The way I would explain it is you have to sharp on a given bet is more relative to the specific number and odds at which you are paying for them. So if you get the exact same line, the exact same odds that Circa had, it was a sharp book, you should be tracking these sharp books and knowing where the lines publish. If you see it publishes at minus six and DraftKings also moves, it publishes at six and Circa moves to minus seven and you could still grab DraftKings minus six, then you've gotten the sharp side for that bet given that you paid minus 110 on the minus six and gotten the same odds that were available at the sharp book. There's a certain point at which the sharp bet has moved so much that it no longer has value. So maybe it's not taking any more action on minus seven or minus seven and a half. It's no longer, it, it's the sharp side, but it's no longer a sharp bet that contains value. So I would say it's relative to a given bet in the odds and the number that you get the bet. Got it. Another interesting question we have from the mailbag. Um, the lines are different overseas. So overseas yeah. just have different lines in here in the U.S. Do you trust the lines if they align with the U.S.? Do you, do you trust the overseas lines if they align with the U.S. lines? Have you heard the term moving on air, Gib, for, for gambling purposes? I have not. Okay, so sometimes uh, FanDuel post a line minus six. DraftKings will have it minus five, but DraftKings just doesn't want to take a lot of money on the minus five because it's not like a strong position that they have or a strong read that they have. It's just what their algorithm spit out. But every other book is at six, right? So then DraftKings will just move to six because if they're the only book with a minus five, then the minus five is going to get slammed there and people are going to take whoever wants the sixes are going to take it at other books, right? So they're leaving mm -hmm. themselves exposed in one direction. So then DraftKings will move from minus five to minus six. 
And then what happens? The, the betters start to see that movement in the rest of the market and then say, oh my God, let me go pick up some minus sixes. Let me go to fan. Let me go. And then those sixes become six and halves. And it's moving on air and not really based on a sharp syndicate bet. It's because a, a book was trying to reduce his exposure and then the market is reacting to line movement. That's not real. It's, it's, it's reactionary. It's not based on data and models and betting trends and, and sharp syndicate groups attacking a line with value. Uh, when an overseas book posts a line, 99.9% of the time, in my opinion, they've taken tons of information from the, the legal sports books in the U.S. and how their lines have opened and have moved and are simply going to match them. The, do I trust them 100%? Yes. If you can bet them, you can trust them. If you can bet against them, you if you don't trust them and you could bet against them, even more power to you. But if they're going to take money in and potentially big money, then they're going to be trustworthy lines. This question goes back to how much do lines move? And we need to check back in with this because the question is, where did the line open at the U.S. books? Where did it reopen at your international books? How much movement can we expect in these lines? And is there more movement to come? So if we're seeing six points of movement generally, and we've seen this move from 233 to 232 in the under, and and we're like, okay, this might get all the way down to 228. Then yeah, we could take it when it reopens at an international book. However, if we're only seeing one or two points of line movement and it reopens at 231 and it's already moved two or three points and that's all we're expecting at that point, even though it's just the opening number at international book, it's not really the opening number because it's taken a lot of information from the rest of the market and it knows where or where not to move and it knows where the market has settled. So an overseas book, it really requires a lot of willpower especially if you're following a handicapper to only take the bets with the exact same odds at the exact same number. Because if you're just following everything with steam, when you get it 12 hours later, then you're going to lose so much of that CLV and so much of that value that's obtained because smart bettors are betting numbers and odds, not sports opinions. So the sports opinion isn't Memphis Grizzlies are going to blow out the Pelicans in game one. The sports opinion is the minus 1.5 on the Grizzlies presents value, but the minus four would not. So we have to, we have to be aware of how much these lines are moving and how much in, in general in the NBA and then how much the line has given to moved already to that specific bet that you're looking at. And can you anticipate more movement? Got it. One of my favorite questions that, that we have in the mail, in the mail bag, and I think I know what your answer is going to be here, but how many points ahead and in what quarter do you cut your losses and cash out uh, uh, when the app is offering you like a cash out now option? Did you say you think you know what the answer is? I think I know what your answer is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What is it? Never. Never. Never have. Fuck yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> never have I ever. It's actually, it's not never have I ever. I've made dumb decisions, but it's never will I ever again. Um, do you want me to quickly explain why, or do you want to explain why? No, you, you explain why. You, you explain, you, you know why better. I just know never to actually take it. Okay, because we play, we, we, we're like hanging out or talking enough that play video games or something, you're, you'll have a good bet going and you'll be like, Mike, what should I do with this? Should I cash out? Should I whatever? And, then, and, and every single time I will offer the same advice. If you want or even are considering cashing out, actually, let's go back. 
the reason to never, ever, 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 ever hit the cash out button. I'm going to answer this in three parts. One, the reason why you never hit the cash out button. Two, the other way to go about the same principle as cashing out, but doing it in a smarter fashion. And then three, the rare caveat where I'm actually okay with cashing out. So the one, the, the reason why you never, ever, 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 ever cash out is because in this exa- in these two examples that were being presented here, either you're winning by a lot and you just want to take the win and take the whatever, 60% profit, that when they offer you a 60% profit, you're in real life probably have an 80 to 85% chance of winning that bet. So by accepting that, just, oh, I just want to take the profit now, you are foregoing so much value. The same thing happens the other direction. When you're watching a game and you're like, oh, shit, my team's down 10 points. I could cut my losses and still get half of my bet back. There's six minutes left in the game. They're offering me 50%, whatever. There's above a 50, like, like. It, the value that they will offer you never correlates with the actual chance that your bet has to either win or that or they're lose. You will always get ripped off. Always, 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 always with the cash out feature. It should be illegal. The way to go about cashing out if you want to do it, but you can do it without clicking that stupid fucking button, is by just betting the other side and hedging. So if you have Memphis Grizzlies minus 4.5, and the live line is 9.5 or whatever. And you're like, fuck this. I, I just want to work off of it. Or I'm in a great spot. I want to lock in some profit. Go to the alt spread market. In the like, Literally, FanDuel will provide live lines in a alt spread market. You can bet pretty much all these alt spreads even live. It's crazy. So go find the exact bet that you have and bet the other side of it. You will get twice as much value back, even though you're going to be shooting yourself in foot a little bit, but you're making the wise decision based on whatever's informed you to do this. Um, You will get probably twice as much return by initiating a hedge position. That's what this is called. You are hedging your bet in a live market as opposed to just directly cashing out. The problem with a hedge versus a cash out is that a hedging takes longer for that money to re-enter your account. When you cash out, you get it immediately, right? When you hedge, you have to wait for the game to end or the, the event to process to then get it back. If you find yourself in a situation where you need to cash out because you need that money right away in your bankroll and don't have time to hedge, you're doing something wrong. You shouldn't need that one or 2% of your bankroll right away. You should be able to say, okay, I could put in this other side of the bet, take a 2X of that return, not cash out, just hedge the other side and wait till the game ends, wait till tomorrow. Even if it's, you know, you're hedging against line movement and working off of a bet and the game's next week and it's a football game. If you're stuck in the mud and you need one or two units back or a small bet position back, You're doing something incorrect with your bankroll management. So then I would check yourself in that regard. The one reason why you can cash out, Gib, and I did this yesterday with the Buccaneers taking on the Bills on Thursday night football. Let me explain what happened. I placed the bet at FanDuel, Buccaneers plus 7.5. Then Baker Mayfield is announced as missing practice 
three minutes after my bet is placed. And I notice all of those 7.5 starting to move to 8, 8.59. They're all moving against me. So now you can get Buccaneers plus 8.5 on DraftKings when I have FanDuel plus 7.5. But FanDuel was still at that exact same number. And I looked at the cash out and it was offering me a 100% equal value cash out because the game hasn't started. The line hasn't moved. It is exactly the same bet and they will return your money. You can go place a bet right now on DraftKings, Gib, and then go try and cash it out one second later and they will not offer you full value. DraftKings does not. FanDuel and PointsBet do. So if I see the exact same line at FanDuel as I see, or PointsBet, as I see at DraftKings or Caesars, I'd rather place it at a book that provides me more flexibility to continue to evaluate the market. So why do the majority of my bets come in at FanDuel? Because they offer a free money cash out if the market starts to move against me and I catch it in time. So for that example, I saw those lines moving. I just clicked cash out on that plus 7.5. I returned my entire bet wager. I didn't have to worry about the variance, but if I'm going to lose value, then I'd rather just hope for variance in my direction and hope that the negative CLV side wins. Um, Yeah, so I will never, ever, ever cash out. I will hedge, and I will only allow cashing out if it's pregame, before it's tipped off, for full value. I'll just say, I, this past weekend for college football, had a four-leg parlay that hit, and the last leg uh, was, the game was at like, 10 seconds left. It was clearly over. It was a couple possession game. And they still offered me a cash out of like 80% value, even though there was a hundred percent chance that I was going to win this parlay. So hundred percent agree. I was actually kind of angry that they offered it. Cause like, what if I accidentally clicked the button? I was just, I was kind of angry that that was like a possibility. Um, but yeah, never, never press that cash out unless, unless it's like, like, like you said in that, in that one. I think it's very like I've said before that cash out button should be illegal. I think it's a pretty, like, I understand why the books do it because it looks like it's good customer service while also giving them a huge edge. So I like, I get it, but I also think it's like absolute highway robbery. Like if we've considered, if we looked into whether or not like prize picks in New York is considered a fantasy sport or a betting game and and what's the legality of it and like how much is it really uh there was like years ago they talked about is really playing DFS actually any better than just playing scratch offs in the lottery with the tournament style contest and should they be more regulated and more outlawed and whatever if we're going to inspect the gambling market like that one of the most egregious places that we should look to and it's saying the book should not be allowed to do this is the fucking cash out button. It is the absolute biggest mousetrap for squeaky public gamblers. Don't fall victim to it. Agreed. Um, I think the last question before we get into my absolute favorite question that we have here. Um, can you review the key NBA number? I know you mentioned them before, but just uh, just go over what are like the key NBA numbers uh, when you think about for for, for betting? Seven is the most common outcome in NBA games. The reason is, is because it's exactly the threshold that it becomes a three possession game. Because, of course, you can make two threes and it'd be a six point game. You could get really lucky at the end of a game 
and shoot a three, make it, foul the other team, then miss both free throws, and then make another three and tie the game and send it to overtime. When you get to that seven points, you see teams stop fouling with 28 seconds left. When you get to the five points with 30 seconds left, you still see teams foul, and then it ha- they have two shots to make it seven points. When you see it as a six-point game, you still see teams foul with 30 seconds left, and they'll maybe make one or two, and they'll get to that seven very frequently. So seven is the most common outcome in NBA games. Five is the second most common. Six is the third most common. And eight is the fourth most common outcome. Those four numbers are the only ones that I really care about and that I really call key numbers in the NBA. Key numbers in the NBA are much different than key numbers in the NFL. In the NFL, we are obsessed with the three, the six, the seven, the 10, the 14. In the totals market, we love the 41, the 40, 44, things like that. We're looking at 38 when we know the game's in the 30s. We're not in the totals market saying, okay, if this game is priced in the 190s, 196 is the most important number. No, it's completely you like just random or like aligned throughout. The, the, the outcome frequencies are pretty standard and relative to each given number. Not 214 is not going to spike more than 213. Like that just doesn't happen in the NBA because you score with ones, twos, and threes as opposed to ones, threes, and sixes in the NFL. So there's a lot more scoring possessions and there's a lot more uh, numbers that can be acquired from the scoring patterns and the and the outcomes that happen. So five, six, seven, and eight are the only ones to care about in the order of seven, five, six, eight. And then the reason to be uh, aware of this is because alt spreads become very important. So for the NFL, Gib, I know that the number one is the sixth most common outcome in the NFL. And I know that you can very rarely, it happens, but the NFL rules do allow you to tie in the NFL. In the NBA, movement through a one is not very significant because you can't tie in the NBA. You'll go to overtime, you'll go to double OT, you'll go to triple OT. It cannot end in a tie at any point. And then One is the 11th most common outcome, which happens 4.11% of the time. It is very rare and infrequent. We get a game ending on the one. So when I see a spread at plus one or minus one and moving through those numbers, then it's not super like important that I bet into it. Going from plus one to minus one in basketball is one point of movement. It is not two points of movement because you can't tie. In the NFL, it's two points. Um and it's more valuable because of the outcome frequencies. So it shows me, okay, maybe I'll bet a little less money if I'm seeing CLV through the ones as opposed to through the five, six, seven, eight. And it'll inform me if I really like a minus one, then maybe I'll also bet it as a little escalator minus 4.5 because I still have the four most common outcomes on my side. And I could take a little plus money booster and skip some like lesser outcome frequencies and then just get, you know, plus 130 on the bet that I was also paying minus 110 on at plus or minus one, push it out to minus 4.5 and take an escalator. So key numbers affect my exposure and my ability to play alt spreads as escalators. Love it. All right. Now to my favorite question. 
Do you ever factor in bookie promos, offers into your bet choice? You know, the odd boost, bet returns. Because uh, as one of the uh, mailbag listeners said, most promos are to get casual bettors into bad ROI bet types, such as parlays and you know, multi, multi-bets. Uh, but just curious to hear how you would like to factor that into, into your wagers. Um, I'm going to give this a brief answer and I'm going to give it over to you because you're one of the most frequent and successful bettors I know at attacking boosted odds. So I'm going to let you handle this one. The way that I would describe it, it's not something I play often, but it's not for any particular reason. I generally would agree that the boosted offer is generally the trap side when they give you we're boosting the Miami Dolphins today against the Eagles. It's because the Eagles are the sharp side. That's because the book wants some money back in on the Dolphins. It's because they, you know, they want to boost that side up to re-handle, you know, rebalance their handle. And for you, it kind of looks nice. It feels nice. Those ones I don't love. The ones that I am comfortable with are the ones that allow you to choose which legs that you are adding to your bet ticket because then you could start to include all of the other capping factors that we know and love. So if we can choose our own bets and it's like a pick any three uh, parlay for 50% boosted odds, then we could start to dabble in that because we could choose three sharp sides, pair them together. We know if we're getting these sharp sides at the same book, like at the exact same time that allows us to parlay it, then they still might have above a 52% chance of hitting you might gain some movement through all of them and you get a 50% profit boot, then yes, in those instances, it can be worth it. So when you can choose your own legs, I'm more inclined to do it. When they are offering you the blanket, this is what it is, I feel less inclined. How about you take a stab at it? Yeah, no, I I think that's probably the most important part. The pre-set and pre-made boosted odds, I'm always very, very weary of because I feel like there's a reason that the books are doing this. There's, you know, as you said, they might be the opposite of the sharp side. That's why they're doing it. Um, I will always check before I put in a, a, a pre-made boosted odds. I will put that exact bet into a different operator just to make sure that they're not just like lying or just like it doesn't make sense. I would say in my experience, about 50% of the time when I see a pre-made boosted odds, it is not actually a boosted odds. It's, for some reason, if you put it into a different operator and you make that, like, say it's a parlay, it's typically worse odds than I have in a different uh, so, different operator. That's such a smart thing to do. You, you have to you have to check it. Um, uh, I'm not going to say which which operator typically does that, but there is one in particular that absolutely does it almost every single time. But FanDuel is a great checker, and it's not it's not. Good. I love FanDuel. Yeah, it might be Caesars. Um, <laughs> um, but the the pre the the ones where they allow you, as you said, to make your own legs, I, I absolutely love. And here's why I love them, right? So I typically how I bet do three or three or four leg parlays. I know it's not the smartest thing on the planet, but that's typically how I bet. And I'll do a lot of same game parlays uh, based off how I think the the game is going to go, based off gameplay. What that allows me to do, if I think someone's going to have an over over under for yards, I can take their alternative yards and bring it down so that I have a higher certainty that they're going to get it. So say, you know, like this game, Jordan Addison, his over under was like, say, 50 yards. I can take the alternative of 30 yards 
and say, I think he's going to get 30 yards, and that boosted odds will just bring it to what it would be normally. So it's almost like a free teaser. You know, like the teaser is exactly what you would get. So I absolutely love love those. Um, I do them every week. FanDuel has incredible ones now. I think every week for football, they offer 50% boosted odds for same-game parlays for four different things. Um, and I've taken advantage of it, and I've, I've won a ton of money. In terms of promos, you know, we were talking about this before. You know, there's a bunch of different operators that offer like your free, like free first bet, either no, you know, there's like zero risk. So you can essentially get a free, a free bet. If you, if you don't win, get it back. You know, I'm, I'm going to Arizona this weekend for a bachelor party. And I know there's two operators I have no accounts with. So I know that when I get there, I'm going to be opening accounts and getting those free, those free bets. So always just, you, and, and all the information is available online. Just Google before you go somewhere like operators in the state, what are the promos? And then you can always take advantage of those if that's something that, uh, you know, you're interested in doing while you're, while you're traveling in a, in a different state. Completely agree. Um, definitely take advantage of promos. Definitely take advantage of sign-up bonuses. And the one thing generally even though they're giving you there's there's two reasons a sports book would offer a promo three reasons one they want to even their handle and it's some shady shit where they're actually covering their own ass because they have too much liability on one side so they'll would they'll accept boosting this 25% so that their liability is less on the other side though that one is a red flag uh the next one is because these are businesses that are competing against each other for to be good customer service. So like when people start freaking out about uh they they refunded the Aaron Rodgers tickets when when people bet the over like that's bullshit. They should know that injuries are baked into risk of a bet when you bet a season long over or or anytime touchdown score. So it's bullshit that they're refunding it after four plays. Like stop getting your panties worked in a bunch because the sports books are giving back monies to customers. Like customer acquisition sure. cost, maybe. Exactly. It's a smart like business decision for these sports books that are competing with one another. And I understand it's not like ideal from a betting principle perspective, but who gives a fuck if the books are giving money back to the betters? There's no reason that we should ever be be feel bad about betters getting money from sports books, right? Like that's what we want. That's why we do this. We want money from them. So uh, if they're going to do it, then by all means. Uh, the, uh, the other reason why they'll do it, and, and I think this is interesting, is they want, if FanDuel will do this, very, this is like the, the biggest book that will do this, they will offer great, great boosts for futures odds. And the reasons why they do that is so that your money is tied up there for the next six to eight months so that you keep your account active and that that's where you go to take your first look for any other bet because you already have $400 in some other bet. And so they already have some of your money tied up. So simply by tying up your money in a long-term future, they're tricking you psychologically to keep coming back and back and back and back to them. So you could take the bet if you find it to be a smart bet plus expected value. If you like the boost, if it fits all your other capping perspective, if you get to choose the legs, then these things are great. If you get that like little boost that they do where choose any team to to on the money line and if they win and if at any point in the game they're up by 10 points, the line automatically cashes, 
We fucking love those things in either direction of whatever side we're on. Both sides can win in that bet. There's no downside to things like that. So we like to take advantage of those types of promotions. You remember when DraftKings did this, they offered $25 if they were up seven. And if you took, I remember there was one week, this was the last year. If you took every underdog, I think one week you won every single week because they like every underdog went up like seven nothing even though they didn't have winning and it would cost them an insane amount of money and that's why they moved it to ten because they couldn't do they couldn't do seven anymore. That's a great little tidbit of information. Love that. Do we have any others? Uh, we have a few more. No, right? Uh, do we? I have I have two that I see or two I have three more so I'll I'll, I'll say I'm out because we we can oh yeah yeah uh, yeah I, I might I might have I only sent myself over the, the early list but you 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 start with the the first the, those three all right the first one I'm going to do is um, totals how often do you bet I think the question was just do you bet totals um, let me pull it up. Do you play totals? And if so, what factors do you take into consideration? I'm assuming pace of play is one factor. Thank you. Uh, thank you for the question. Pace is most certainly a factor. We certainly hit that earlier in the pod. Yes, I love playing NBA totals. Yes, I love playing NBA totals early. And yes, I love following line movement as the main factor as to what I'm playing. So I am a line movement capper. When I see something move, I understand this is likely the sharp side. I try and find the opening number at a different book, follow that direction, and hope to gain positive value, positive closing line value on that bet. So when I am looking at NBA totals and the bet direction aligns with my thought process and my, you know, the way I'm looking at the game and capping the game myself, if those two things are lining up, then I love, 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 love to bet into NBA totals. Because they're pretty much a, a very sharp market. When you're getting something like daily NBA games and betting the over-unders on those games, less amount of public people are betting them. The public are betting more point spreads, more money lines, more props. Um, they're betting NFL games right now. They're betting golf on weekends. They're betting Thursday night football, Monday night football. So if you're plan- planning playing a random Pelicans, Grizzlies NBA total when there's 11 games happening that night, like that's a pretty sharp market. And generally you could really follow early line movement in sharp markets, because if there's only sharp betters, it's going to steam most likely in one direction. We rarely, more rarely see bouncing markets in totals. And we also see totals move more numbers. So uh, NBA total is more likely to move five to eight points than a spread is because the outcome frequencies are way wider. I generally think two, uh, uh, there's 2x movement in a total as there is a spread, and that's what we should weight it as. Like Moving one point in a spread is just as valuable as moving two points in a total in the NBA. That's a general philosophy. It's not exact. Um, and of course, it's relative to specific numbers that you're moving in the spread. But that's generally what we see. We see totals move twice as much as spreads. So if we could attack those numbers and obtain big movement before and big closing line value, then we've done great. So yes, I bet totals. They're a very sharp market. You bet them early because there's big moves and we win big money and pay rent off betting NBA totals. 
you play Total Skip? You're muted. I do totals. Uh, it's not my most frequent bet, but I do I do bet totals. If I if I have an inkling that the game is going to be a super fast paced, high scoring game, I'll bet totals along with with a parlay with player props. But uh, you know the the books take into account if you're going to have overs for points uh, for player props, and then you add in the over and the on the game. It, it actually isn't really. Sometimes it's not worth adding it adding no. in because they barely they barely add it. Sometimes it's interesting to do the under and you have the player props over. Then it like kind of skyrockets the value of the the bet. Um, but that you know that that's that's more unlikely. All right, let me ask you one. How often do you live bet? Often do I live bet? I only live bet when, like, in the situation that you talked about, when I have a parlay going or I have a bet going, and I can cash out, but I don't want to cash out. I want to. I just want to like okay. guarantee some kind of win and yep. guarantee a profit. That is the only. That's typically the only time I will live bet. Um, I just I, I I'm not I, I guess I'm not great at I, I feel like I haven't been great at live betting in the past so I just I kind of stopped doing it. Well, the reason why people generally aren't great at live betting is because of a few things. Um, first off, yes, majority of my live bets are hedge positions because uh, you're you're and and mine are generally hedge positions to open up a live middle and a positive middle and like seeing something. Let's say my team's up ten. And then I'm seeing something that I feel with my basketball knowledge that this game is going to, I have six points of middle ground. I'll, I'll, I'll open up 50% buyback or whatever on a live bet. Um, it's very rare for me. I, I don't live bet that often. I don't talk about live betting that much in a context capacity because it's really hard to explain the strategies for someone else to go take them. And it's that much harder to even give some, give out the bets because the lines are moving way too fast for me to bet it, tweet it, someone else to read it and then go bet it. The lines moved by that point. There's been a, there's been 30 seconds of gameplay that's happened and that changes everything. So majority of them are, are, are hedge and middle positions. Um, I don't really do it that often. And it is never based on pregame priors. It's never like, oh, I was looking for the minus seven, but it moved to minus nine. And now it's middle of the second quarter and the line is at minus seven. So I can get that original bet that I wanted and I really wanted it, but I missed it. But now it's there for me again. So should I take it? No, it's not the same bet anymore because now you're asking your team to win by to cover a seven point spread in two and a half quarters instead of four quarters. Right. Like there's there was four quarters of game time left. So to ask them to cover a a seven point spread was a completely different bet. That's why it went out to nine. That's why it's at seven. Now, if it was originally at nine and now it's at seven, that means early things in the game have happened. That's not good for the side that you wanted to bet on. So it's no longer the same bet. So do not use, I wanted this number and I could get this number. That's why most people live bet. And that's why they mostly fail because they're using what they wanted before the game to impact what they want during the game. You really need to forget. I even said this earlier in this pod. I was like, once the game starts, you forget what you were thinking about before. The majority of games that I gen- that I just live bet are games that I have no, pos- if, if, if it's like creating a new position, it's because I don't have any position there and I'm seeing something early and early on that I want to attack. You also have so much less information to make a live bet. 
You have uh, you don't have hours of pregame movement. You don't have you can't assess multiple books on how they're pricing. You can't as quickly line shop for the best prices to make sure you're taking it at the best number at the best book. Like these things are happening too fast in real time to really attack them. It's really live betting is difficult. It, if you have been a successful live better, if you have consistently won money from live betting, then keep doing it. If you aren't doing it, then I suggest stepping away. It's that simple. Go. If it's too hard for you to not live bet when you're watching the game, then don't watch the games you bet on. I, I even prefer to watch games that I don't bet on because then I could simply just be a fan and not hope for – Oh, I hope the pace slows down, or I hope they I hope this team just starts missing every shot. Like I could genuinely watch basketball and love the game from from uh from a fan perspective if I have no bets on it. Um so I advise against it if you've never done it before. I don't it don't play into your pregame priors. It's no longer the same bet. You could do it as a hedge position, uh, but I find it to be a scary market. The last thing I'll say to this, Gib. The one place where we might be able to attack live odds this season is with the new rest rules and with them making it so that you have to reach the 20-minute mark in order for the game to be counted as a games played towards that 65 thing. If you only play 15 minutes and are pulled, there I don't know if that counts as a game for the awards races, right? They, they, they did that minutes rule. So our team's going because they didn't want Drew Holiday to, to take the opening tip, foul a guy. He played for seven seconds. He got the game played and he cashed his contract bonus, right? They don't want those incentives to, they don't want LeBron playing 82 because the 17 games that he rested, he actually checked in for one second and then checked back out. Like we, the, the NBA, that is such bad optics for the, for the league. They don't want that. They don't want players suiting up in arenas just to check in for a minute. They want the product to be what the product is. If a guy's going to rest, then just have him rest. That's why if they're going to play, you need to make them play 20 games. Now, the sneaky trick to this is are any teams going to play their guys 20 minutes in the first half and then just bench them the second half and say, okay, we have a second leg of a back-to-back. We're giving you the second half off. If teams start to do that, let's say it's the Clippers with Kawhi. Remember Kawhi like played just skipped – half of a game last season and then played the second night in a back-to-back the very next night and everyone was like what what the fuck was that um if we foresee those things happening and we could get ahead of them if we have news that it's going to happen if we have a strong inkling that's going to happen and we see Kawhi Leonard in the game with 19 minutes played with 15 points scored and his over under for his live points total is still 22 and a half and you think he's gonna sit in three minutes for the rest of the game then fucking slam the under. Like, that would be a way to do it, to live bet player points unders if you think they're going to rest. That is extremely detailed. It is probably few and far between, but if you can identify those spots, it presents one of the biggest live betting opportunities I've ever seen. And that's why, you know, live betting is really, really hard, and that's why a lot of operators do offer, like, some of their boosted odds are, for any live betting, here's 25% boosted odds. They because they know that you don't know how to how to bet this this live and will likely lose that bet. Live betting is scary. Live and live betting, I you know, I, I I've started to 
to take it on, especially in football with like play style and matchups and saying, oh, wow, this team is coming out very differently than we've expected. In basketball, it's really difficult. And in basketball, you can only live bet the players that are actively on the court. So even once Kawhi checks out and you're like, oh, now he's not coming back. Now I'll bet the under. The under is locked. Like there only is available for the five players that's on the court and in the game spreads. So there's even limited opportunities to even bet the things that you want. So you need to be very predictive of the future, which means if you're not working with a model or you're not some like basketball savant and you're not attacking this from like insane knowledge of the game because you're a former coach, then it's really, really, it's a, it's a complete stay away. Give the last one that we got was how much does load management um, affect your futures, right? I think that's what it was. Um, yeah. Okay. I, I just, I just, I didn't write down the full question, but the yeah, general I, principle. Yeah. Is how it do, in there? How much does load management? Yeah. Yeah. How much does it affect your, your futures bets? Okay. Um, it's a, it's kind of a trick. It's kind of a tough question to answer. How much does load, does your, does how much you foresee load management happening impact your futures bets? If I'm really confused by what the anticipated load management schedule of that team is, then I don't want to bet anything for their futures. It's then those, those teams become stayaways. So it actually might be a simpler answer. Like, do I have Intel different from the common knowledge? Or is this like going back to the well of like OKC rest players and it's pretty public, like the like the the typical take or Chet Holmgren's coming off a foot injury. So he, he they might rest him on back to backs or Wembenyama's a rookie and they're not going to take they're not going to put too much pressure on him or so on and so forth. Like those things you don't want to you don't want to bet into public common perceptions of what load management is going to be that's when you start betting sports opinions and that's not what we're doing here on the advantage we're attacking odds values implied probabilities outcome frequencies line movement betting splits travel trends all of those things like the the most important part of our betting is what happens between the bet and then when the game tips off and then once the game tips off we're like all right what we did is what we did hopefully the process showed us to be successful because we beat the number um load man like you're not gonna unless you have significantly different intel they pretty much become stayaways and like i have i love the grizzlies in their some of their futures but i only bet them in their title odds because the one thing i'm confident in was by the playoffs john morant is going to be fully rolling i don't know if when he comes back, we talked about this early in the pod. Is he only playing 20 minutes tonight? Is he coming off the bench? Like, what is the situation? So I'm I don't know how to bet their win total, even though I fucking love them as a team this year. So I'll look to attack them from a game-to-game market. I'll look to attack them from a title futures or playoff futures, things like that, because I'll just stay away from the areas that I don't know. Yeah, uh, no, I agree. And I think along those lines with with futures and and uh with awards, especially when, if there's anyone that you have concerns, if they're going to play 65 games, as we've talked about, because of load management, I would, again, stay away from betting that they're going to win that award if you have any concerns there. Um, that's the only way it has impacted any of my my future betting. Okay. I think we did all of them, Gib. I think this has been a, an amazing podcast that we've done. I'll, I think I'm going to re- repost 
my first gambling mailbag that we did a few months ago. It was on the old Advantage feed. So I'm going to yep. get that reposted this week back on the new Advantage feed for everybody who listened to this episode and wants to take on more NBA strategy. Give my one question for you that I had. Uh, I yeah. told you I was going to I told you I was going to surprise you with one. Now you All don't right. know that I offered the people your boy Jalen Brunson on the Knicks as a Panini Prism uh giveaway card for any person that commented a question. So we got some great questions in that I pulled. Choose one question and for that person, what was the question that you felt was the best or we got the best answer on or we learned the most or just pick one by fucking random. Who is getting what question is getting a free Jalen Brunson Knicks Panini Prism card? I do love the promo the promo question, but I think that the most interesting question here, something that's very the advantage one. How much do the, the question is how much do the game lines move before NBA games and what affects them the most? Uh, whoever that listener is knows exactly what the advantage is and it's coming to advantage for, for the right reason. So for that reason, I'm going to pick whoever asked that question. So you pick Douglas, who actually I, I've never actually interacted with Douglas, but you know damn well I know who he is because there's almost no one that interacts more with all of my content. So you picked a great, great winner. Quickie, sticky F, my guy, Doug. Dougie Fresh. I will be dub. DMing you. And you have won a free Jalen Brunson giveaway card. All right, Gib, thank you for your time. I appreciate you. And uh, to all the listeners, I hope you guys learned a lot. You can always send me more questions. You could, you know, just tweet them at me or DM me or comment them on my Substack, wherever. We will open up these mailbags. So if I don't answer it right away, I will make sure I throw it in the next mailbag. And hopefully we will do these every so often because they're super important pods. Again, if you learned a lot, Make sure you listen to it twice. Some of this stuff should be inherent knowledge when you approach the sports books. Just like when you get, uh, you know, an 11 at the blackjack table and your dealer showing six, you know, you're doubling up that bad boy. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Gib. And as always, peace out. I got to find the outro. Here's the out- new outro vid, Gib. Check this out. You just listened to another episode from the Fantasy Basketball International Podcast Network. Thanks for joining us. And for more information about joining our community, please check out our website at fbibasketball.com.